Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 59 with Ada Karamanian. Ada is one of my favorite people, and it was just delightful sitting down to talk to her about casting and contemporary theater and where we're where we've been where we're headed what she's reading and we got through the entire interview the entire hour and I stopped recording and we both realized that we forgot to mention the entire interview that she's trans and so I'm mentioning it here please enjoy this interview thank you for those who have been donating who have been sponsors in 2015 Looking forward to 2016 with the podcast. If you have a little extra holiday money that you've gotten and you don't know what to do with it, hey, be a sponsor or donate to the podcast. If you visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com, there are two little buttons where you can donate. We'd sure appreciate it. And now, enjoy episode 59 with Ada Karamanian. Delighted, enthused, excited to welcome Ada Caravanian to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. I am very happy to be here. So we kind of know each other through our good friend, Matthew Gregory. Mm -hmm. You have Whidbey Island roots. I happen to live on Whidbey Island, and I love it there. And we have a lot of the same theater folk friends in common. Uh, Let's start with sort of your trajectory as a theater artist. Was there – what was the moment growing up where you are like – I love theater. I love performing. This is something that I want to be a thread in my life. Sure. You know, I think there were two very distinct moments. One was I was working on a in a show with Whibby Children's Theater, and I had just this really ridiculous, silly, funny role to play, and I kind of took it into the stratosphere as far as comedy is concerned. Right. And really milked it for all it was worth. And um, and I think it was the fact that everything I said got a laugh and I could hear it really <laughs> from for the first time um, on stage. And that was very intoxicating, I, I would say. Um, so that was, that really stood out to me was that first time you get a response from an audience consistently um, really made me go like, okay, like, I'm doing this right, I guess. I'm, I'm, I was like eight years old, but uh, what I understood was I, <laughs> I was getting it right. Um, the second uh, moment was a, much more profound, I would say. I in I want to say it was at the start of high school. I had some friends, and they had season tickets to the Seattle Repertory Theater, and uh, when one of them couldn't go, so some softball game or something like that right. would take them out of town, they would call me up and say, "Hey, you want to come?" and I generally always said yes because it was on the weekends and I could. And so they took me to see Lily Tomlin in The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe when she came back around with it after a 15-year hiatus or whatever after doing it in New York. And that changed my everything as far as what I thought theater was possible, what how an audience can be – how much – how invested an audience can be in in the the work they're seeing before them, and um, to this day, that had to have been where the the everything changed. My perspective really, really changed, and I I just thought there's no other place in the world I would rather be. 
than in this community. Um, in some some capacity, I, I wanted to be close to that that moment that I was that watch, watching her perform that show. So I would say it was kind of those are the two top two moments. <laughs> top, top two moments, yeah. as opposed to top five yeah. in high fidelity. Uh, what were some of that? What uh, leading off of that, uh, watching that performance of. Search for Science, Intelligent Life in the Universe. It came up. I recorded two podcasts today that came up in in, in the previous oh, podcast cool. as well. So it's Lily Tomlin Day, which is fantastic. Every I love day. that. <laughs> uh, so, what after seeing that performance, how did that change how you uh, approached seeing theater? How you approached performing as a theater artist as well? Um, well, I think one of the most astounding things to me at, at that age, I, I, just to put that into context, I was about thirteen or so. Um, what I discovered was that you could do so much with with so little, with just yourself as a vessel, with you and and you have your text, and and anything is you can tell any story uh, by yourself, and so I think and that really morphed the next phase of of studying theater and and, and as a performer in particular. Um, and from an audience perspective, it, I guess it would be a little bit of the same, really. Um, I didn't need Spectacle. everything around it, exactly, to, to accompany it, to, to highlight it. Um, I didn't need a cinematic uh, effect um, to keep me involved. I just needed a good storyteller telling a good story. <laughs> and um, I didn't really quite know up until that moment that 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 was possible and so uh from there on out I, I kind of look for that i look for as they describe in the play a goosebump experience <clears throat> i think that virtually every play out there good or or maybe not so um has that possible there is that possibility for a goosebump, goosebump experience i love it <laughs> uh, for Excuse those of me. our listeners who aren't familiar the search for signs of intelligent life in the universe uh if you haven't seen there's a t- recording of lily tomlin i watched it over and over mm-hmm. as you know in middle school and high school mm-hmm. uh it's played by jane wagner it's a one-woman show mm-hmm. uh and she plays multiple roles both male and female mm-hmm. different races i believe yeah. as well mm-hmm. and, and uh, back to back too like on top of each it's other just her so, and a shopping cart on stage yeah well not even on stage there isn't even a shopping it's really it's all sound effects so everything so the you know she put her hands out and it like clutching the handlebars and then you would hear the wheels go okay. as she moved across the stage it's quite literally her how i remember it was her and two like little staircase platforms like maybe three steps or so and that was it like that that's it she didn't change her costume or anything and it was all rapid fire but it wasn't just you know like and then i turn and then i drop my voice it was everything all of her mannerisms her her, her facial expressions vocal inflections her emotions i mean she was a hundred percent invested in every single character and it was oh <laughs> it was flawless and, and yeah her 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 now wife uh jane wagner wrote the play back in the 80s it was actually workshopped at the seattle repertory theater so there's oh, kind of a that. yeah a little little tidbit there it, um and they did i want to say if i'm not mistaken back in 84 so they had jane wrote a, a one-woman show for lily in the late 70s called appearing nightly which she did on broadway and won a special Tony Award for it. And you can actually go to YouTube and watch her acceptance speech, and it is wonderful. She does a whole little five-minute bit, and I won't give anything away. Just, it's so 
brilliant um, and 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 phenomenal. It's almost like a little piece from the play um, that she does as her acceptance speech, and it's really lovely. Um, and then she went and toured the play, and one of the stops was at the Seattle Rep. <clears throat> Pardon my little scratchy cough. It's okay. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and while she was there, Jane had been writing new material for her, and because she had been doing appearing nightly all over the country for about five or six years at that point, and in the process started writing Search for Signs, and I believe the first draft, or they did a workshop of it, um, but they never performed the play, the full production at the rep, until it came back. So that, that workshop then was turned into a full production that they did at a couple other theaters before she went to New York and did it. And won the Tony and played for over a year and and whatnot. Um, and then when it came back 15 years later, that's when it stopped at the wrap and they did so. That was Seattle. It, it actually wasn't Seattle's premiere of it. This is interesting. It is a one-woman show, traditionally speaking, but the Empty Space Theater did a production of it in the early 90s with, um, I can't remember, with two actresses. Uh, one, Lori Larson, who is fabulous and she still performs out here. She's marvelous. Um, and they had two performers, and I found at one point in time a review, uh, the Seattle Times, but you can look up Seattle Times archive reviews, and I read it and uh, gave it some good notices, and it was kind of an interesting concept of how to do that play with two people. But, um, but yeah, so it, it wasn't uh, completely foreign to Seattle audiences when it came back in, in, in the early aughts, but, uh, but uh, it was first time with Lily, fully... Lily, I, I don't know if, history you, there. Uh, if you've heard her interview with uh, Chris Hardwick on the Nerdist podcast, which is delightful. You totally should you should listen to it. But she was saying that uh, kind of the process that she and Jane had for developing new work, both stand-up and theatrically, is they um, had had a couple of different spaces in uh, where they were living that were sort of abandoned storefronts or secret wow. places. And... Uh, you would somehow get on their email list or back then I think it was, you know, like an actual mailing list or they would call you and uh, there would be these sort of pop-up performances to just test the work in front of 20, 30 people and then they would go back and they would write and whatever. And I just, I, I think that I have such respect for her and she's someone who, I mean, she's been a firebrand. She's been a revolutionary in, in, in the 70s, her work with Richard Pryor and, uh, and she's still at it. She's yeah. still at it. She just got a Golden Globe nomination Yay, for Grandma, which I haven't did. seen yet, but I'm super excited oh, it's to. So good. Have it you was, seen it? Yeah, I saw it the the, the first week it came out. I, um, uh, at least nationally. Um, and yeah, oh yeah, I was following that from when it was first announced that like Lily Tomlin's coming out. There's a new movie with her coming out the end of the summer, and so I was like, when is it coming out? Like, I have to see this. Like, I can't stress enough that this woman has. Uh, she's. She's remarkable. She's my favorite. Like I just, I love her. So of course I was like, I'm there. So my friend and I, yeah, we went and saw it. And so it was, it was not what I, I went into it and I think I had some conception of what I was going to get into. But it was, uh, it was so beautiful. It was such a nice little throwback to you know how like in the mid aughts we had that like independent film blow up where <clears throat> you had films like Ghost World and Pieces of April and then suddenly Hollywood like. <laughs> up that concept of, like, the right. little indie darling, but they, like, overproduced it. So then you had, like, 500 Days of Summer and things like that, which were, to me, a little bombastic compared to what came before it. Um, <clears throat> Grandma, to me, was kind of more along the lines of a film like Trans America or Pieces of April or Ghost World, where it was, it didn't have any pre, like, uh, 
any pretense. Like it was very um, grounded and so smart and it's so sweet and, and humane. And, and she just, uh, she really took a, this character and infused her natural instincts into making it three-dimensional because she she doesn't play up anything it's not a it's not overdone it's not overcooked and it could be it could definitely call for it because it's really this woman has some very interesting ideas of life and 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 whatnot and she's at a crossroads herself and and so you know you can really overdo that and she keeps it very simmered and and very um nuanced and uh, it's really lovely. So when you get a chance. I know. We're on this Lily Tomlin go. kick. And yes. I have just one more anecdote before <laughs> we, we go into the next thing. Mm-hmm. Should we get you some water? Is that possible? <laughs> no, no, no. I think okay, I'll be fine. we're good. Yeah, awesome. It'll just keep coming up. <laughs> it'll, fantastic. Live podcast recording is my favorite. Um, because it's not a... I, I thank you to Act Theater. You are the front office rep here. We're in a rehearsal studio. I feel very fancy oh, yeah. uh, being in here. Um, the Skinner Rehearsal the Room. The Skinner Rehearsal Room. Yes. Fantastic. Newly named. Uh, but my last little tidbit about Lily Tomlin is mm-hmm. I just recently, this week, um, I, I believe it was through Variety. I think you could see it on Variety's website. But uh, there's a short interview with... Uh, uh, her one-on-one with Amy Schumer um, talking about unlikable female characters. Mm-hmm. And in that, I was I was pleasantly surprised that I love that Lily Tomlin was, you know, she looks right at Amy Schumer and talks about her character in Trainwreck, and she's like, I think you could have gone further. I think you could have gone further with her being unlikable because this mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a woman who's, you know, empowered in her sexuality and who doesn't, you know, she smokes pot and she drinks and she's just unapologetically herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really great to see that, you know, intergenerational conversation between the two of them about playing, un- quote, unquote, this is an audio medium, you can't see me doing air quotes, unlikable <laughs> women characters. But So leaving Lily Tomlin and Amy Schumer in their Variety interview, we talked a little bit, we, we said Golden Globes, uh, you mentioned the movie Transamerica. I want to talk to you about mainstream trans roles and casting them. Mm -hmm. The Golden Globe nominations just came out. Both Jeffrey Tambor and Eddie Redmayne are cis actors who are nominated for playing trans women roles. How do you feel about that? How do you think that Hollywood and uh, theater as well should go about casting trans roles? Are they doing it well? It's good that trans storylines are being brought to the forefront, but why aren't they using trans actors? Sure. I think that's a, a great question. You know, this I, I've been following this um, this conversation only for a little while, uh, particularly when it came out after uh, Jared Alito won the Oscar for Dallas right. Buyers Club. Right. And there was a lot of pushback. And what was interesting was at that time, because I, I saw Dallas Buyers Club and I didn't think anything of it. And I thought, I thought he did a beautiful job. In this, in in that character, and fully deserved his award, and um, at least with the competition, and and was satisfied, really. Um, and but I started paying attention, and and initially, I had to be perfectly honest, I had a little bit of a moment where I stopped and I went, I don't really think it should matter. Like if you find the right performer to play this role, like then then that should be it. Like find what's right and and play it honestly and play it beautifully because nobody barked when Felicity Huffman played 
uh, well, actually, I take that back. Some very, very, very small quibbles came out, but it wasn't as there wasn't as much of a conversation, and that could be because social media wasn't as big and widespread as it is now, and trans voices were definitely not out on a, a public level as much or being talked about in the media as much. Um, but it, it was a smaller, it was more contained, and I'm not sure if that's because she's a cis woman or, or, or what. So, but, um, so there's that. But I, I started, you know, I had that little pushback of like, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for casting whoever is right in the role. But then they talked to the director of Dallas Buyers Club and he said, oh, I never even thought of it. I just picked Jared. Like, like uh, there are no, you know, like, and the 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 idea being whether or not he meant it was the 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 what he basically put out there was like I don't care if there are trans actors who could have taken this opportunity and played it just as well and 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 been an authentic you know transfer of type of character into performer that fits that body and everything and understanding and <clears throat> um. And that's when I kind of stopped and went, well, hold on. Like, and I started to look at the argument a little bit more, uh, kind of like, okay, so this is really where the problem lies, is that there isn't even that sense of uh, it, it being something that you can do. Like, there are trans performers out there. And um, so... And then I had another bounce back. So I'm, I, this is a little long-winded, and I apologize. But another little bounce back where I stopped and I thought, well, but wait a minute. As a performer, like, would you, if you're trans, would you want to go into a casting room? And let's say you've all you've ever wanted to do in your life was play Harper Pitt in Angels in America. And this opportunity came up, and this really great comedy came up, and they called you in and everything or whatever. You go and you give the best damn audition you can for Harper Pitt and Angels in America. And then you find out you didn't get it because they wanted to cast a cis woman because, well, there you go. <clears throat> and so I stopped and I thought, well, does it, you know, like, well, hold right. on. Like, where does, does, how does that fit into the conversation? Because... God, you know, like, I don't want to live in a world also where trans women are only going to play trans characters. Like, I want their Absolutely. equality, <laughs> you know. And and so I struggled with that for a really long time. So uh, what I think ultimately to wrap it up and talk about what's going on right now, I think my, my biggest thing is we have to give people opportunities. And I don't think it is unfair for the trans community and their allies to say, hey, like, transparent people, casting directors, directors, did you think about finding somebody or did you just go with this actor because he's a name or whatever your your reasons are? Same with Danish Girl. Like, did you stop and think, like, how could, could we have found somebody who is uh, – a trans performer and, and and done whatever you had to do, even if, you know, to get them to, quote-unquote, Eddie Redmayne's level of, of performance genius or, you know what I mean? Like, or did you just go, you know, that guy's hot, you know? He's new, he's talented, he just won an Oscar, let's put him in this part, you know? Like, so I, I think that it's a fine, there needs to be a balance. And I think that right now, until we get to the point where it we do have equality in the casting room where somebody who can come in and audition for Harper Pitt and not, you know, even come into consideration. <clears throat> um, 
or the other way around, somebody comes in auditioning for Hedvig and Hedvig of the Angry Inch and they're cisgendered, it's not a conversation of like, well, you know, until we get to that point uh, of equality, I think that people need to be given an opportunity. <laughs> so um, if that makes sense, I think I'm I think I'm explaining it clearly. Absolutely. So I think there are baby steps and we need to, yeah, so, so yeah. Thank you. Thank you for weighing in on that. I, I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, so in addition to working here at ACT, you also work at Fifth Avenue. You also uh, do some front of house and independent casting work for New City Theater. Uh-huh. So you're just, you're just all over. You're completely immersed yourself in the world of Seattle theater. Also, you're a Gregory nominator. Yes. Uh, in this past year, what has what have been productions that have stood out to you for whatever reason that have really resonated with you and why? Sure. Um, you know, I'm going to – one thing I should mention is that I can't mention anything, and I'm sure you know this, but just right. in general, um, I have to exclude anything that I saw uh, per the Gregory Awards. Um, so I can't talk about those shows, so that might I might have to stop and go, was that something I graded or, or not, <laughs> um, before I say anything. Um, Understood. <laughs> all, all bias aside, I have to say – I am the reason I am working with New City Theater. At least I started working for New City Theater was because I <laughs> I asked them <laughs> to let me work for them, <laughs> <laughs> and and there this spring they uh, produced uh, Maria Irene Forna's uh, one act play Mud, and I didn't see the actual run of the show. I saw the dress rehearsal, and it was one of the best things I've seen in the past couple of years. It was dress rehearsal was flawless, and that was um, John Kazanjian directed, uh, and it was performed by Mary Ewald, George uh, Catalano, and Tim Gowran, and it was flawless. It was sensational. The design was so perfect, uh, and, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the play or. Um, it's it's really really quite and it's a series of scenes seventeen if I'm not mistaken very quick scenes um, that in the script it's scripted to call for that at the e- end of each scene the action freezes and so it kind of uh, you paint like a still shot like a still photo of what happens and so the way they captured that and made it even more authentic and and uh, atmospheric was they had the stage the performance space was surrounded by a white scrim on three sides the front and then the two sides in the the back wall <clears throat> and so when they would bring the ha- the lights down and then you would just get the couple things that were illuminated that really stick out at the end of each little vignette and it was so poignant and it was something as simple as a plate of green beans and uh, Mary's character with George Binder with his hand over her eyes and and uh, what it the blend of of the storytelling and this language and the performance art that went along with it how we as humans move and and um, and what that conveys it was sensational it was really delicate it was like a dance and sometimes it was really an uncomfortable and an ugly dance but um I'd say that one really uh, stood out and just kind of made me go, okay, well, I'm, I, that's why I work for this company. Right. And uh, um, so that one, I think in particular, is the first that comes to mind. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm trying to think, what are some others that really 
moved me. Um, I really liked what the Siegel Project did with Chekhov's Three Sisters at the start of this year. Um, and I think that it was a very perfect balance of tech, like really taking technical elements that, that are capable in theater and smoothing them alongside um, really authentic performances. And then on top of it, staging the piece in a way that keeps the mo- it keeps the momentum going. So check off one of the, the quickest things to, you could do is to slow things down and to take your time. And perhaps that's because it has such Chekhov's work has such a long history with method acting and, and Stanislavski and whatnot. <clears throat> um, and in this case, it really kept up the pace, and it, it really and it, the, the actors didn't seem to lose sight at all of uh, the story and, and their characters and the nuances that go along with it. So, um, those are the <laughs> first two that really come to mind. I saw so much for the Gregory Awards, and right. I'm like trying to <laughs> get it out of <laughs> trying, your brain. Trying to get so out of my brain. So maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. Uh, Zooming the camera out a little bit, what uh, just in terms of, of of the bigger landscape, what what stories, what kind of actors, like what what really attracts you to a production? What in generalities, what make what makes things resonate with you? Um, you know, I think one of my the the first and foremost, I'm attracted to a something new. If and not that doesn't necessarily mean a new play or something that's new to audiences completely, but originality, and um, and and I will say that I I can be very critical when it comes to original works if the description going into a play deciding whether or not I'm going to go and see it if the description just sounds too similar to a story I've already heard um, even once you know I I. I can be very choosy about how I <laughs> divide my time and um, and what journeys I want to take uh, artistically as an audience participant. Um, <clears throat> so I I really want to be I want to walk away and have learned something or to have some profound experience, even if it's something I've seen a hundred times. I, I want to see a new production of it and a fresh interpretation of it. And that is, I guess a lot of that really depends on my own, you know, like that's, that's hard for a director to always be like, what does Ada want? So, (laughs) so I have to, (laughs) so I don't blame really, you know, I don't, if I walk out and I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't always, I try to be very balanced and fair and say, well, I think that's partially just my own, what I want out of something as opposed to that. I have to stop and go, this is my uh, subjective opinion of the play, and this is, like, really, like, was it good on these merits? And, like, did they do this? And, like, so... um, But I think that's first and foremost, is I I want to be... I want something new, and I want to be challenged, and I want to be moved. Yeah, so... I just want you to keep talking. I just... I'm kind of mesmerized. (laughs) You talk um, so articulately about theater and it's obvious that Uh you're very passionate about it i love theater theater acting (laughs) um let's talk about casting yeah casting in theater this is something that maybe people don't think about but a lot of work happens before you 
even that first rehearsal starts, you know, uh, and and it's most of the time I'm on the acting side of the table. Sometimes I'm on the directing side of the table. But uh, what is your philosophy surrounding casting? Where do you think the future of casting and in, in modern theater is 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 headed? I know one time you said. And I truly believe this, that you're going to get a mention in the New York Times about, <laughs> Eddie Carragher did the casting for this show, and it was brilliant. Um, so what, what I, is a very long-winded question. What excites you about casting? Where do you think it's going? What's your philosophy? <coughs> Tell me all about it. Sure. Um, so... I should say that is uh, that is my end my end goal in life. But as far as uh, a little pat on the back, I, in my dream uh, timeline before <laughs> I die, the number one achievement in my life would to have there to be some sort of mention in the New York Times that I was involved <laughs> somewhat, which doesn't seem to happen very much. I read a lot of New York Times, and I never talk about the casting department, but. That could change. <laughs> so there you go. Um, it's really interesting how my foray into casting where it really started. Um, to be perfectly blunt, what when I started studying it, I was at a point in my life where, already in my life, where I stopped and I said, what are you doing? <clears throat> because I, it was a long road and and fine, you know, not not too rocky or, or difficult to deal with, of letting go of the aspiration to be a working actor, and um, and so I said, well, what do you what are you going to do? Like, what do you because you got to start doing this now. I don't want forty to creep up or fifty to creep up and be like, I'm just slinging tickets, and and that's you know, for me personally, that's just not where I want to see myself, uh, uh, and so. Um, but I'll do it <laughs> if I have to, by all means. It's fun. But um, so I looked back and I really kind of dug through all possible, like, what are career choices? What are things in the theater world that interest me? And thought about stage management. And I was like, no. Thought <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, I thought about uh, production and, and, and it just, the same thing. It just, I, there wasn't a natural fit. And then... I stopped and really started thinking about um, Act Theater's casting director, uh, Margaret Lane, and her the the little back and forth that she and I have had, and and in talking about her job, and it just clicked. There was just this moment of of clarity where I stopped and I thought that is incredible, and it takes. A, you know, eighty percent of it is something that comes naturally to me, an instinct and and um, and a passion for putting puzzles together and meeting new people and keeping up with the artist community and um, and reaching you know and and uh, surprises and and being part of that and and being influential in that and being a soundboard. I love the the idea of just being in a room and talking about the the possibilities. What what is capable and and um because you learn something new every day you you end up teaching something every day you know it's it's fascinating and um and watching talent bud and blossom and grow is remarkable too and this city in particular it's 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 really wonderful to see people as they progress as they learn as they challenge themselves 
when they come out of their shell and what are things that make them go back in their shell and and what can I do if it's even something I can do or my responsibility to help nudge them back out you know and um, and then there's a small part of the career the the path that is relatively a challenge and I love a challenge and that <laughs> is I have not <laughs> admission I am not the most well organized person <clears throat> and I'm talking like very like administratively organized like I just recently forced myself to file everything that I had <laughs> in my desk and like get folders and put them and like properly put them up and it, it took me physically having to get things to make it happen and I did and it's wonderful once you start getting it it makes sense and so it's teaching me at the same time how to keep things very organized <clears throat> very confidential um and uh I just think it's fantastic so that's kind of what interested me really off the bat was that it just sort of all of the little things that make me happy that I can do that the fact that I can do it and, and make a, a career out of it were very appealing <clears throat> and um, as far as the world of casting it's 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 very unique you know we talked a little bit about equality and 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 inclusion and I think that that is happening on a national level right now that is extraordinary to watch and uh, I think that there's more to it that we'll get to with time and again I think that and that's a very vague statement but what I mean is that right now what needs to happen is that door needs to be pushed open and artistic directors and, and, and just independent directors and other casting directors across the nation need to just start calling in people that are talented and they're we need to kind of break down the walls of well we're doing a elizabethan story that takes place in new rochelle and this is an upper crust white family so let's find people who are specifically white specifically look you know eurosaxon Anglo-Saxon, Euro-Saxon, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon, and she has to be 35, so therefore, and Jesus' size. And it's so limiting, and then you get the same 10 actors in over and over and over again, and you're calling the same 10 actors to say, 90, you didn't get the part, one of you, you know what I mean? And it's like, let's get some variety in there. Let's get some fresh faces, some fresh blood uh, working, and... Um, I think that's what the demand is right now. I think audiences are warming up to it. And I think that and the more they see it, the more they're liking it and they're relating to it. We're pulling in newer audiences <clears throat> that otherwise wouldn't go to theater because who the hell would ever think that uh, the president of the United States of America in 18-whatever is going to be played by a black individual. Let's talk, you know, about, let's talk uh, about Hamilton, yeah? yeah? we're talking about Hamilton, which is interesting because I actually have kept a very far distance from Hamilton. And only because this is – it's Hamilton's not exclusive to this. <clears throat> and it's only because I anticipate seeing Hamilton. One day I will see Hamilton, and I like to approach new shows with very little context. I want right. to go in very blind, so I haven't listened to the music. I know – a lot about the show itself and the casting and the process and how the reaction has been. But that's it. I haven't read a plot, uh, a synopsis or anything. I'm very like, I want to see it. It's the same thing with Fun Home. I don't know anything about that. That's on my list of shows to see uh, next trip to New York. And so 
but Hamilton, yes, we could talk about <laughs> what I do know. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's extraordinary. And so it's 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 interesting when you have people who will say, well, but you can't, and then you go, no. You can, and it can be the biggest sensation in the musical theater world since, I don't know, Wicked, or even, you know what I mean? Exactly. You know, like, as far as, like, I mean, I don't know if that's legit, like, if that's the right answer, but it's certainly to that magnitude, if not... Book of Mormon, I think, would be the most recent example that I can think of, and then Wicked even before that, of, of as far as people going in droves, the word of mouth being so good and it being an audience sensation, the one thing that Hamilton has going for it that Book of Mormon did as well, Wicked, not so much, is the critics are on the same page. And so that's a big thing. It's a it's a universal love affair of this show as opposed to it just being an audience hit or, or whatever, whatever. Um, and that is remarkable. And and if you read a lot of the, you know, the, the reviews that were out there for Hamilton, very little touch even on in the initial reviews touch on the 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 blind casting um racial blind casting which i think is fantastic that is where we need to go they're talking about how great these performances are how great the written material is that is spectacular they're not saying and it's a black guy or and it's a this or that you know and so i think that is fantastic and that's so, to wrap that up, the future of casting is just that. <laughs> Bring people in because they're talented. Get them in. See what they're capable of doing. See how they grow. Give them a shot. I don't care if the person's supposed to be this or that. Or blah, 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 blah. Get them in. And I'm, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm really, there. I think is, and this is kind of tapping into that, category that that vague comment that i made a little earlier there is going to be some further conversation that needs to happen because then we will have situations where we go okay so we're only calling in trans actors for trans roles do we call them in for cis roles or we're going to do this you know like we we did sound and music which takes place in australia and we had a very racially diverse cast but now we're going to do porgy and bess which is very rooted in its time and place can we extend the same olive branch to people who are not black or african-american it's that's an interesting conversation that needs to then we approach um and i i don't have any opinion at this point my my first instinct is to say no poor game has black actors and that's all there is to it um but that is a conversation that needs to happen and and i'm curious to see when it'll come up how it'll come up and how people will respond to it and at this point in time i'm just like waiting for it to happen as opposed to initiating it so yeah yeah uh what What voices in the American theater, I'm talking playwrights right now, uh, are most exciting to you? Hmm. That's a very, very good question. Um, you know who I really love? <laughs> Though he's, he's been around for a very long time. Well, not so long, but 30-plus years. I love Terrence McNally, which might sound yes. totally silly, but... Uh, is he? I don't think many would agree with me that he's a fresh new. You know, he's writing anything that's super 
invigorating or contemporary or moving theater forward or into new places it hasn't been before. But the thing I love about Terrence McNally is from day one, he was writing true, like very real, relatable characters and and beautifully. And then it's funny because then he would write a character like Maria Callas in Masterclass and he would take this whole other approach to it. So it's funny when he's writing fictional characters, how authentic they are. And then when he's writing about real people, how he then starts to kind of play around with um, uh, some unique things. And, and I'm particularly referring to at the end of both acts and Masterclass, she has about a 10-page long monologue. And uh, it's fascinating. Uh, it, it's almost a Jane Wagner-esque, and it's multiple characters are coming out, and she's like, you don't know if she's present or she's in her head or what's going on. Um, and I think a lot of that's also director interpretation, but it's 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 remarkable. Um, so I look for a good <laughs> new Terrence McNally play. <laughs> um, I also would say another. Uh, name from from our recent history who I always follow is Harvey Firestein. Um he hadn't written a play like just a, he's been writing books for musicals for the past couple decades but there was a big chunk of time there where he wasn't he hadn't written just a play and I can't remember if it was Safe Sex or or what the last one was but then he wrote Casa Valentina. You're telling please <laughs> let's rehash our conversation we yes. had about it because it sounds fascinating. Uh, Casa Valentina which I yeah so and he wrote that and that was his first play in 20 years or something like that um, and and I saw it in New York during its its limited run on Broadway and uh and that was last spring, uh, May of 2014. And Casa Valentina blew my mind when I saw that. Uh, it, it really just took me into, that's, again, like that goosebump experience. I did not quite anticipate how incredible that production was, was going to be. And it really, really was. And it was startling and it was frightening and it was sad. Um, as one reviewer said, the show itself is um, sort of like Chekhov in drag, <laughs> which I thought was really quite quite unique and, and true. Um, Casa Valentina, for those, basically what it's about, is uh, takes place in the early 1960s in the Catskills, and it's a uh, a house that is run by a transvestite named Valentina. Um, boy name is George. <coughs> And his wife, George's wife, Rita, and um, and their relationship is one of the plot lines, one of the things that you follow closely. And you come to find out that when George is Valentina, Rita, it's like having George out of town, but George's sister-in-law in town. That's their relationship. And they're having some money troubles keeping this house alive, and they, they run a house for transvestites. So nine to five workers in New York City and in, in the New York City metropolitan area come to this house on weekends or whenever they can get away and stay and dress as women. <clears throat> and you come to find out that all of these these individuals are heterosexual identified men and they have wives or children or both at home or they're retired or they're, they're widowers or, or whatever their scenarios are. And um, uh, all ages, you have some that are in their – it's a small cast, eight or eight or nine. But um, you have some that are in their 20s and all the way up to 70s or so. And 
the conflict is that they have invited to save the home in the, from the financial state they're in. They have invited someone named Charlotte to come. Um, and I believe Charlotte's boy name is Isidore. Charlotte to come. And Charlotte is from the West Coast. And she has successfully turned houses like this into nonprofit organizations <clears throat> so they can receive funding and also like start to promote in society so they're not looked upon as freaks or anything like that. And um, so she has been invited to come and persuade the house and its regular tenants to go nonprofit. And so she comes in and she has all these, you know, she's your ultimate wasp. I mean, she's right. a delectable character. It's played by Reed Burney, who is, I, I hadn't, unfortunately, I hadn't heard of him before, but I'm so glad I know who he is. Now he is a brilliant, brilliant character actor. He's remarkable. And <clears throat> so she comes in and in the process of talking about this to the group, she says, well, here's the paper and you all need to look at this and we'll talk about it. And at the end, I need you to sign it. Well, the requirements are that you have to give your legal name and legal address. And of course, that's an instant like, for a lot of these, these, these men. Um, and then there's a little, little note in there that one of them catches. It says, absolutely no homosexuals can be part of this group. And so they have a little conversation about what that is. And some of them in the group are, you know, they say the gay bars are the only place I can go outside of this place that I'm in now. That's the only place I can go and do this and be comfortable. Gays are the only community who have openly accepted me in a dress. So, like, I can't turn my back on them. And then you have Charlotte, who is the society, the voice of society, who is saying, and very true early 1960s social mentality, gays are disgusting. They're rats. They're vermin. They're, you know, like, they're repressed. They're, dis you know, they're, they're mentally ill. And uh, <laughs> there's a funny line in there, of course, that Harvey Firestein wrote. And, you know, it, you could practically turn the audience and wink at them, where <laughs> Charlotte says... You know, in 40 years, you know, the homosexuals will be the, you know, the, nobody will even talk about them anymore. They'll have been cast off the face of the earth, whereas we will be the, you know, heterosexual identified transvestites will be the walking, you know, with, with the best of them out there, you know, as far as, as, far as uh, small movements. And we'll be remembered as pioneers and all this, this stuff, which ultimately didn't happen. Um, and uh, to quite the extent that Charlotte would have wanted. And <clears throat> so that tears the whole idea apart. And that's just act one. So I went into intermission being like, what's going to happen? Like, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what could happen. That was another interesting thing was that it was like settled. The group said, nope. Charlotte's like, eh, I'm defeated. So you, it was very like, okay. And then act two just kind of flips it on its ear. Like just completely... Uh, smacks you over the face. <laughs> and it's really ugly and really hard to watch. Um, but it was so tastefully done. It was so so remarkable. And, and, and in the end, in particular, gives you more so than, than Charlotte did before with her, her viewpoints on, 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 on gays and lesbians. Uh, 
gives you there's a another character who comes in i won't say who um but another character who comes in and in like two pages in like five minutes gives you the audience and everyone on stage the reality of their situation and who they are and how everyone looks at them and it is painful to watch and it's really like you have been immersed in this world of these people comfortable in their own skin to have this it's really shocking and I just thought it was the, the so the play itself is there's a lot of of um, things that are not explored, a lot of left you know th- questions hanging up in the air, and um, a lot of characters uh, that you you just get a little taste of them, but nothing too deep. But and that's fine. But anyway, but it is interesting to me because in the 21st century, my generation, our generation, uh, where we grew up, where when you see a man in drag. It's RuPaul's Drag Race. It's you know, it's and it's Priscilla Queen of the Desert to Wong Fu. You're getting uh, divine. You know, you have this uh, liberation about it. And for the most part, as far as we know, the assumption is these are gay or queer or bisexual men. You know, heteros or not heteros, uh, cisgendered men. <clears throat> and so to have this piece that takes place in such a a very clear time and place in the 60s in New York and to have that juxtaposition and then on top of it to have somebody come in and talk about gay men (laughs) in particular in such a way it was it's almost like it's almost comical you know and 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 silly but it's also very real you know and that's but that's one of the things I loved about it too is that what you're watching is just so it's such a secret. It's you're mm-hmm. in on something that that you you otherwise might not have been. And just to put it out there too, there is actually a great book. The play was inspired by a book called Casa Susana, I want to say Susanna. That's out there. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I could be butchering this, but if I'm not mistaken, what had happened was an individual, a gentleman died, an older man died, and when they were going through his estate, they found a suitcase full of photographs. And in the suitcase, the photographs were all of a house similar to what's in this play, Casa Susana. <clears throat> and um, they were fascinated by you know just all these beautiful women, except there was something else to them. And um, so they published this book of all these photographs. And there's really no no not much as far as the story. I don't think there's much writing. Um, or insight on who they are, and that adds to the mystique of it. That adds to the the, the kind of it's almost moving and, and mysterious and sad and and yeah. So I recommend checking that out. Thank so that's you, I, I Harvey Firestein, Casa Valentina. Like so said, those I two could, writers, yes, I could listen to you for forever. I think that that's an interesting segue into <laughs> as as time goes on. And and more folks identify as gender queer or gender neutral. And uh, what do you think that means for traditional theater? I mean, we talked about trans actors a little bit, but I'm finding this experience that the next two roles I'm cast as are are men, and it's not going to be a joke. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be me like. I, I am buying a compression top. Like, I am doing mm-hmm. contour makeup. I am going to be in a suit. I am going to be Sir Andrew Agachik, and then I'm going to be several different British and Scottish men in the 39 Steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so exciting to me. 
uh, as as a taller woman and sort of as a larger female actress to because I think in, in the traditional theater world, right, I'm a character actress. I can't be a romantic interest. You know, I'm not thin enough for that. And to be able to start having those things on my resume where it's not just all character actresses, women, predictable things, but sort of being able to break it open in that way, that's so exciting to okay. me. And I just want to hear, like, your thoughts on that as well. On... Um on like gender neutral casting or gender neutral casting and, and as more actors I think I, I performers identify as maybe uh, not just male or female mm-hmm. coming into an audition room in in a world that is very you know are you male or female what roles have you played yeah. these are the boxes we want to put you in interesting um, you know I think that in in some ways and and I can kind of relate to this because uh, I'm I'm going to have to think about that for just a second because I'm trying to form a... Uh, it wasn't a very well-asked no, question no, no, either. No, no, no. no. Because there's just, well, there's my brain's going in about four different ways. places yeah. uh, on how to answer that clearly. But, um, I mean, I think it's... I think it's excellent. <laughs> to me, that's just like putty in your hand from right. a casting perspective. If you have somebody come in and and there's, there's a... a, a not to put it in a box, but let's say androgyny to it or, or right. a lack of a, cons- you know, a one, this is a very feminine person, this is a very masculine, you have that blend that it's just like you could really do anything with it. And I think that what I would advise any actor is to be very clear of any gender, is to be very clear about what you're auditioning for and and make that known when for a long time when I was still auditioning and, and exploring theater, I put on my my resume that I would play anything. And and not just gender. I mean I mean I would play any like you cast me as a tree, you know, I'll play an entity or whatever, right. you know, like I would play anything. I'm not gonna box myself into <clears throat> I will only play this or only play that. So uh and I don't want to limit limit myself that way. And I think that in general, that is how most of the actors I know, at least, approach their work. They're like, whatever, whatever is clever. Um, but if you are coming into the room uh, as a gender queer, gender neutral, uh, identified individual, I think being um, I mean, communication is key, and and that will I think help those on the other side of the table not go. Oh well, you know, like what? I would love to offer them this, or do I call them back for this or that? Or so. uh, And to piggyback off of that, I I will say these two male roles that I'm cast as. I was very clear with both of the directors saying, uh, "Please consider me for roles that are not traditionally uh, that are uh, that." Sorry, I am interested in roles that are are traditionally cast as male mm-hmm. as well as female, and please consider me for those. Yeah. I did. I mean, it wasn't a mandate sure. by any means, but it was. Hey, I want you to. I want you to know that I'm open and excited about these opportunities. Should you see fit in your vision? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that on the other hand, too, for you know, on the other end of the table, from a casting director, uh, artistic director, I, I would. Uh, that side I would hope that there is a level of of just keeping options open I mean if you call somebody in for something that you think that they're perfect for 
and you're not, you know, then then by all means, and if that actor doesn't feel comfortable doing it, they don't have to come into the callback or accept the role. And I think that there is, so it's, it kind of works both ways in that Absolutely. sense that like communication is clear. Be clear to your actors who and what they're called in for because, and be sure that that's because they're, you really do think they're right for that part or would make a good fit. So call them back and actors don't stop from telling a director don't be afraid to tell the people on the other side of the table if you have boundaries if you have limits if there are things that um it's it's also about how you say it you know to say i will not play it sounds a little demanding so i think there's but being clear i think is great and and respectful and i don't think anyone's going to be opposed to that and if anything it'll make it easier in the long run (laughs) so uh to, to know what what we should or should not consider if you're are if you are particular about what you want to be seen for um so yeah that's that's my thought on that a little bit little take on on that is i welcome it i think it's exciting um i hope to see more of it i really do i really do so gender neutral and gender queer people come perform for us please <laughs> please i think that's a lovely note to end this wonderful interview on. Mm-hmm. I, I could I could seriously listen to you talk for hours about <laughs> all of this stuff, but uh, our hour has come to a close. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Well, thank you, Katie. It was a pleasure. 